go, and we are looking at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37, and we're going to read down to chapter 12, verse 3, a fairly lengthy portion, and yet one that we'll move through quite quickly, I hope, this morning. Uh, And before we read this together, uh, let me pray for us and pray for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our God, we do know that you have promised to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. We thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you that your word is like silver refined in a furnace seven times. We thank you that it is perfectly pure, that it comes with all of your divine authority. We thank you that you reveal your son, our savior in the scriptures. We pray that you would draw us to Christ. We pray even as we look at very searching and sobering um, passages of scripture and warnings We pray, our God, that you would use them to lead us to the Savior, that we might flee to him for grace. And so would you please bless the preaching of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. And now Luke records for us uh, this account. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash, that is, wash his hands, before dinner. And the children should not get too excited that Jesus did not wash his hands before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. Behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said... And there Jesus is referring to himself as the wisdom of God. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed 
on the housetops. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I saw a a fairly humorous uh, title to a Babylon Bee post this week in which they had a picture of the coexist bumper sticker and and the title of this uh, parody news report said, new study reveals humanity just one coexist bumper sticker away from world peace. We can just get one more one more symbol on there, we're good. And now, as I reflected on that and the irony of that, I thought, what a sad time we live in where we are constantly being told what really matters is just getting along with everyone and letting everyone be whatever they are and believe whatever they want to believe and that it doesn't matter what you believe and that at the end of the day, all religions are basically the same. Anna and I actually had a a girl tell us that uh, when we were on vacation, she said, it's all basically the same. I said, well, it's really not. It's really not all basically the same. One of the things about Jesus is that Jesus was not this sort of saccharine, sweet, uh, coexist, bumper sticker kind of teacher. Um, Jesus, remember, uh, comes and he says, I came to set a man against his daughter a father against his son, those of a man's house will be his own enemies. My, my, what a hard saying that is. And here, as Jesus is making his way to the cross to provide atonement for the sins of his people, he is welcomed into the house of one of the religious leaders in Israel, one of the great sects, the Pharisees. And, and you would think, actually, it's a very tense dinner. I, I tried to import myself into this and think, Man, that would be a pretty intense dinner to be at. It starts with the lawyer judging Jesus for not practicing one of their man-made ceremonial rituals, and it ends with Jesus walking away. That's the, that's the dinner. And everything in between are the six woes that Jesus pronounces on them. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Hey, teacher, you're insulting us too. Woe to you, lawyers. Um, this is Jesus. This is the only Jesus there is. There is no other savior. There, you can't make your own personal Jesus that, that doesn't teach and say these things. This is the savior of the world. And it is an uncomfortable dinner. And yet it is a din- dinner at which Jesus teaches some of the most important things for our souls as he deemed it necessary to the souls of those Uh, he was engaging with. Now, this morning we're going to see how Jesus uncovers religious hypocrisy. Um, That's obviously the big picture. Here are the religious leaders. Here are the seminary professors. Here are the pastors of Israel. Here are the ones leading the people. And Jesus tells them that they are engaged in false religion and that they are absolute hypocrites and that their hearts are dead and black, and their hearts are like graves that people fall into, not even knowing that they are what they really are, and that they don't even know what they are. And Jesus is going to do this, I think, in order to help us, as you see from uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, to examine ourselves whether we have been affected by the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, we're going to see two things as we consider this this morning. First, we're going to consider the heart of religious hypocrisy, and then we're going to consider the remedy to religious hypocrisy, the heart of religious hypocrisy, and then the remedy 
to religious hypocrisy. Now, notice that um, the, uh, the self-righteous religious leaders can be very observant. Um, I was thinking about this. He, he's invited to the home. Jesus is invited into the home of one of the Pharisees, and, and he goes. Jesus would entertain anyone. He would go to the home of a notorious sinful prostitute, or he would go to the home of a self-righteous, respected, uh, legalistic religious leader. He would go wherever he was welcomed, and he would go to preach the truth. And no sooner does he walk into the home and they sit down on the floor to have a meal together that the Pharisee has taken note that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Now, the Pharisees had come up with a, a code book, something like the IRS would have, of laws that they made up that were an uh, appendix to God's law, and they had, they had hundreds and thousands of extra laws to help uh, in their minds, to help people ensure that they wouldn't transgress God's law. So if God's law was here, they would build 500 things around it so that no one would transgress God's law in their thinking. And one of the practices they had was the washing of the hands, not just normally washing your hands as we do, but a ceremonial ritual in which they actually said in the, the Mishnah that the water, if it went up over the um, if it went up over the wrist and came back down, then the hands were clean. So they actually had a very prescribed method. Jesus walks in and I think intentionally refuses to wash his hands. He refuses to uh, entertain for a moment any form of man-made religion because it would have been sin and he's the sinless savior and he would not for a moment subject himself to that. Now, notice how observant the Pharisee is. He's astonished. Um, By the way, as we talk about the marks of religious hypocrisy, one mark, and I say this sort of apart from other things I'll say, is that a Pharisee, a self-righteous, legalistic-hearted man or woman, is hard on others and easy on themselves. So that's a very straightforward mark. I think John Stott made that observation once. A a legalist is hard on others, easy on himself or herself. And um, the Pharisees were all about policing others and looking out and seeing what others were doing and not examining their own hearts. That's the... That's the, that's the heart of the matter. The matter of the heart is the heart of the matter. And they were not examining their hearts. They were examining the actions of others. And here they are scrutinizing, this one Pharisee in particular, scrutinizing the very actions of the Savior. Now, notice Jesus knows what he's doing, and so he begins to reveal and uncover the heart of religious hypocrisy. The Lord says to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Jesus is going to use almost more illustrations, and some of them are fairly absurd, if I can put it that way, in this section than he almost does anywhere else in a short combined section in his teaching. Um, Maybe you've left out a cup of coffee and for a few days you see things growing in it. I've done that, much to the chagrin of my secretary and my wife and others. I'm a mess. So things are growing in the cup when you forget to clean it out. And it's disgusting. And then it's hard to clean. 
And Jesus says to the Pharisees that what they were concerned about, it would be as if they took a cup that was full of something that could spoil and things could grow in, and they would go and they would clean the outside of it, and they'd put it down and let all the corruption and all the filth remain within. And Jesus said, this is what you're like. This is the first mark of a hypocrite. They were, and I'm going to give you a series of marks. If you want to write these down, you can. If not, you can just listen. They were obsessed with externals. So the first mark is a religious hypocrite is obsessed with externals. Phil Riken says they were more concerned with outward appearances than inward godliness. So they didn't care about what their hearts were like. They only cared about how they appeared in all of what they, they did. Leon Morris The old um, uh, 20th century scholar said, the Pharisees were concerned with what one does externally. Jesus is concerned with what one is internally. So they were concerned with what one does. He was concerned with what one is. Um, Morris again says, no amount of pouring water can make up for a wrong state in the inward life. Water on the hands can't cleanse filth from the heart. It's impossible. So the first mark is that Pharisees were obsessed with externals. Notice Jesus goes on, and, and as he continues to uncover, and, and this is, it, it is scathing, he calls them fools. Verse 40, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give alms of those things that are within, and everything was clean to you. But woe to you. Here's here's. The first of the six woes, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now, the second mark of religious hypocrisy is that a religious hypocrite is preoccupied with the minors to the exclusion of the majors. So God required a tenth of everything that his people prospered by. He, yes, I think he still does. That is, that is a requirement of the creature to the creator and so much more within the church. Um, and yet the Pharisees looked at all that they had down to their herbs. And if they had amassed a certain amount of herbs, they would, they would in the strictest way possible, if today, if they had one of those little digital scales, they would weigh it out just to the 10th to make sure that they're, they're tithing their spices and their herbs and the very minutia of what they gain. And Jesus actually doesn't correct them on that. He doesn't say, he doesn't say you shouldn't do that. Actually, he says that you should have done that, but you've neglected the weightier matters. So a religious hypocrite, and I think the reason for this, and this is very, very interesting and important for us to get, the more you can make religion manageable in your own mind, the more you'll fall into these traps. So the Pharisees like to reduce everything down to things they could do self-righteously. And so they focused on the minors. And Jesus said, but you don't care about people. Jesus said, you care about ceremonies. You care about tithing. You should care about tithing. He doesn't say not to. He says, but you care about those things, but you don't care about people. Um, 
in our context, it's quite possible for a man or a woman um, to go to worship regularly, to teach Sunday school, to give, all of it, and, and not care about people and ultimately be trusting in those things. Right? Jesus said, many are going to say to me on Judgment Day, Lord, Lord, didn't we teach in your name, prophesy in your name, do this and that in your name, and I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. So that's so we can trust in and in the smallest things, the things we think are manageable. Well, I can give. Giving a tenth, by the way, is not hard. If you don't give, please start giving to the Lord. But it's not actually hard to give. Um, there's something deeply wrong if I can't give a tenth of everything that He gives me. Jesus is saying that's small. That's a little thing. You neglect the weightier. If we're not doing the least, um, we're not doing the greater, and we may even be doing the least, and yet not be doing the greater. Phil Riken again says, to open your wallet without opening your heart is hypocrisy. I think that's a very well-worded statement. To open your wallet without opening your heart is religious hypocrisy. So we've got two so far, obsession with externals, Focusing on minors in religion. Third, Jesus now brings a second woe to them. Notice, he says, woe to you Pharisees, verse 43. You love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. They were lovers of reputation. Now, this is going to sting because all of us love reputation way too much. Um. Remember a number of years ago, I was witnessing, and somebody was just just willfully suppressing the truth, and um, and it said to me, you know, my big problem is I can't believe in a God who wants all the glory and attention for Himself, and I said, well, you want all the glory and attention for yourself, and they were just like, true. <laughs> I mean, so, so you who are finite and a creature and weak, you want the glory. You want people to know who you are. Why is it wrong for the infinite God to want all the glory and majesty? And yet Jesus says religious hypocr- hypocrites love the reputations, the best seats, the greetings. They love for their name to be paraded. Um, a friend of mine in here said to me this week, you know, I wonder, I don't think we were created to be famous. It's actually an article about Anthony Bourdain this last week or the week before that said we were never meant to be famous. That's part of the problem. And yet people love, they love reputation. The heart of religious hypocrisy is obsession with externals, focusing on minors, loving reputation. And then notice Jesus now gets a bit more esoteric. Now notice he says... Um, you love the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces. Notice verse 44. Now here's another woe. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, in another place, he says you're like whitewashed tombs. And what Jesus is saying is that there was a sense in which, um, and, and back then, and in God's law, if you touched a dead body, you became ceremonially unclean. So that was very clear in Leviticus in the Old Covenant, someone touched a dead body. They were unclean. They couldn't worship. And, and what Jesus says is that these Pharisees are like unmarked tombs that people fall into. 
so that their hypocrisy is not enough for themselves, but they have to become, as it were, this, this snare of death for others, so that when others met them, and in Israel it was very, very prevalent, they all thought these are the real deal. These people are the real deal. So if you met Pharisees and scribes, and if you met the lawyers and the Sadducees in Israel, they were the revered ones. If anyone was godly, it was them. In fact, the name Pharisee uh, was a name that was given to these 6,000 or so men in Israel at that time who saw themselves as the pious ones. They actually saw themselves as the pious ones. So they walked around, I'm pious. And Jesus said, actually, you're spiritually dead. And in your spiritual deadness, you're actually a snare for others to fall in and remain spiritually dead with you. There is no life, there is death, and it is a death that actually spreads like a contagious disease. So Jesus says, and now notice this, notice over in chapter 12, after completing all this, Jesus warns his own disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, you know, spreads through everything. So Jesus is giving us these vivid word pictures so that we would recognize just how serious the nature of religious hypocrisy is. In in saying that they were whitewashed tombs or unmarked graves that people would fall into, he was telling them they were spiritually blind and a snare to others to remain spiritually blind. So they kept others in spiritual death and decay. Um, Notice there's a transition here. I imagine it is incredibly intense in this house at this moment. Um, I would imagine many of us, if we were with Jesus, would be tempted to be like, hey, Jesus, maybe just cool it. Maybe just ixnay on the wonays. Like, no more woes. No more. This is, that's enough. I think, I think we've offended them. <laughs> that's, that's our postmodern uh, cult of niceness. And, uh, and notice one of the lawyers has that visceral reaction. He's got that sort of, he's sensing this. There are other religious leaders there. And notice that what the lawyer says. One of the lawyers said, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, who were, the, who were the lawyers? They were not lawyers like you and I think about lawyers in our society. They were the theologians. Many of them belonged to the sect of the Pharisees. Some of them did not. These were the ones that you went to when you had a question about scripture. If you wanted to know why God said you shall not uh, boil a goat in its mother's milk, you go to these guys and ask them why. And they're going to give you some big, uh, long sermonette about the purpose of the law. They, they studied the law. They were skilled in God's word. Um, it might be helpful to think about it this way. One theologian said, in, in many respects, the Pharisees were like a fundamentalist denomination. And the, and the lawyers were like their seminary professors. So they trained all the ministers in the fundamentalist denomination. Um, 
And so you can see how this lawyer is saying, well, you're criticizing our students, and so you're insulting us. And he's essentially telling Jesus, zip it. Like, I don't want to hear anymore. Stop. Um, I love this, by the way. Look closely here. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, what do you lawyers also? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't miss a beat. Jesus is like, woe to you lawyers. Three more woes. And this time he gives us three more marks of religious hypocrisy for us to take to heart. Notice that the first one, he says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Um, They were deeply legalistic, and they took this weighty legal approach with all of their man-made rules and regulations around God's law, and they put them on people like a heavy weight. Um, greatest book ever written in human history, besides the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, I will argue with you about that, it is the greatest book, uh, begins with that picture of Christian with the burden on his back. And, and he's weighed down with this burden, and it's, it's a picture of sin, and the weight of sin, and the guilt, and the burden on the conscience of man, and he's got to get rid of the burden. And that begins his journey to the cross and then to the celestial city. And, and I'll come back to this in a minute. That is a picture, an illustration, as it were, of what the lawyers were doing. It was as if they would come to someone like Christian who had that burden on his back of sin. And they were like, oh, here's another thousand pounds. Now get to work. Do you really want to be righteous? You won't do this. You won't walk seven miles on the Sabbath day unless you cook a couple meals at this house. And if you cook two meals at this house, then you can claim it as if it's your own house. And then you can walk seven miles from there because anything further than that would be going further than the synagogue from your house. And, and if, if something falls down a well and you've got to get it out, you can't get it out on the Sabbath. You, you can't use a rope. But if you have a woman's sash, you can use that and... They came up with, I'm not making this up, they came up with crazy, crazy legalistic perversions. Now, here's the interesting thing. The lawyers not only missed Jesus, who was in their midst, they even missed the law itself. They didn't even get God's law in the way in which God intended his law to be received by his people. They were so self-righteous, so legalistic, they would go around binding others with their own legalistic interpretations and adjustments and additions to the law that God gave them. Now, um, there's another woe. Notice the fifth woe. This one gets a bit complicated. Jesus says in verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your father killed. You are witnesses. You consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God says, that's Jesus speaking about himself, I will send you prophets and apostles, some of whom you will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, It will be required, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, what is Jesus saying? 
he is seeing how these religious lawyers are erecting these monuments in Israel to the old covenant prophets. And that looks, that looks quite good. It goes back to the externalism, the outward, the love of reputation. They look like the greatest humanitarians of their day. It would be like someone erecting a monument to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and then going to a KKK meeting. It doesn't make any sense. So Jesus is going to say, you hated the prophets, your fathers killed the prophets, your wicked heart didn't want to hear what the prophets had to say. You've never wanted to, and in fact, I am the prophet. Very interesting. There are six woes in this section. I think we're meant to have our minds carried back to the old covenant prophets when we read this section. And if you went back to Isaiah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, you would find six woes that God pronounces against the nations. There's six woes of forthcoming judgment. Um, And then you come into Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah appropriates one woe to himself. And here is Jesus, who is the prophet of prophets. This is the eternal son of God. This is God in the flesh. This is the great prophet of the church. All the other prophets pointed to him. And he is fulfilling the prophetic ministry. He is there. He is there to fulfill what all those Old Testament prophets just merely pointed to. And they hate him, and they want to kill him, and they want to reject him, and they don't want to hear him, and they can't stand to have him in their streets and in their presence and people following Christ and believing in him and finding rest for their souls. But very interesting. This is fascinating. There are six woes in the section. And Jesus doesn't say, woe is me, like Isaiah does. You see, here's the sinless prophet. And what this one says, who is the very wisdom of God himself, he is God's eternal, infinite wisdom in the flesh. And he comes And he says to them, woe to you, in all of your pretense, you have have had murderous hatred in your hearts to every true prophet, because your heart is just like the heart of every one of your fathers who murdered those prophets. And then Jesus does something really interesting. He starts with Abel, Genesis 4, who's the first of the prophets, his brother kills him, Cain. And he ends with Zechariah, which is functionally the last of the prophets in the Old Covenant. And he bookends the entire Old Covenant period. And he says, you are every bit like every one of your fathers in Israel, in the church, in the Old Covenant, who despised and hated and killed the prophets that I sent them. And Jesus says, I'm going to prove to you that you have murderous hearts because I'm going to send you prophets and apostles and some of them you're going to kill. And they do. It's fascinating. Jesus tells them everything we read in the book of Acts. Is that not remarkable? Jesus is standing here before he's ever commissioned the apostles, and the wisdom of God is telling them, I'm going to show you what's in your hearts because you're going to kill some of the very apostles I'm sending to you. Mark 
was that they pretended homage to true teachers and true prophets while having hearts that hated the message that God sent through them, which pointed to Christ. That message pointed to Christ. Now the sixth, the sixth woe, notice verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourself and you hindered those who were entering. They were false teachers. The, the sixth the sixth woe gives us the final mark of a religious hypocrite is that they love false teaching. A religious hypocrite will do everything he can to pervert the truth, to make it accommodating to himself, and to keep others from the truth. Now, this is really sad. You know, when this is parallel to Jesus in Matthew 23. If you, if you went to Matthew 23, you'd find the parallel section. And there's that account where Jesus um, cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to them. How I long to gather your children together, but you were not willing. Jesus is still addressing the Pharisees when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he says the most grievous act of religious hypocrisy is that religious hypocrites will labor to keep others from coming to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, to have their burdens removed, to have their sins forgiven, to have their hearts changed, to have all the mercy and the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. And that's the most vile. You know, I actually think that's the most vile mark of a religious hypocrite is that because he or she has not come to Jesus Christ, he or she very manipulatively will keep others from Christ instead of driving them to. They take away the key of knowledge. They hide the key that's so clear in the scriptures and keep people from coming to Jesus. Now, um, these lawyers were intense. Uh, Phil Riken says, imagine having a study Bible with uh, study notes written by the IRS. That would be kind of the equivalent of what they were doing in their day. Now, you may be sitting there and you may be saying, okay, this is nice. This is a nice historical lesson. You've told us about the Pharisees. You've told us about the lawyers. You've told us about what they were like and how they were Jesus' enemies. You've told us all that stuff. But, but I don't see people that per se look like this in our congregation? Well, I think one of the first things we want to see is that those general principles manifest themselves in a thousand different ways. Phariseeism was not really and truly a unique religious movement in Israel in Jesus' day. It is the religion of the natural man or woman in his or her heart. So our natural heart is to be obsessed with externals, focus on minors, love reputation, live in spiritual blindness, and encourage others in spiritual blindness to set rules and regulations for ourselves to be deeply legalistic, to weigh burdens on others, to despise true teaching, and to entertain false teaching. Those things are indicative. And here's the thing. The Pharisees and the lawyers were absolutely blind to it because they didn't want to take one look at their own hearts. And Jesus would have us look at our hearts and would say, what's going on in your heart? John Calvin, I don't know if you know this, he had a, 
He had an emblem. It's uncharacteristic of John Calvin, I think. He had an emblem of, uh, with an etching of hands with a flaming heart in it. This was his emblem. And in Latin, he had inscribed what we would transliterate today. I, I give you my heart, Lord, promptly and fully. I give you my heart. I want you to think about that. John Calvin's motto was, I give, Lord, I give you my heart. I don't hold it back. I don't reserve it. I don't keep it for myself. I want you to have my heart. And I want to worship you from the heart. And I want to live for you in my heart. Not in all these external, hypocritical uh, forms. Let's very briefly talk about the remedy to religious hypocrisy. And before I do, I want to say this. I, at any given time in my life, have myriads of hypocritical living or thinking going on within. And that's true for you as well. Um, Not one of us can say, I have no hypocrisy in my life whatsoever. Not one of us. Um, And so when we look within and we see something like in the cup, we see things growing in the cup. And we see ugliness and anger and bitterness and self-pleasing and and sexual morality and everything else just growing in the darkness of our hearts. We need a remedy so that we don't try to act like we have it together together. And we don't put on a pretense. The worst thing in the world would be for me to put on a pretense without dealing with my heart. And to act like best foot out, best hand out, best face on. I got it together. We're good. I'm better than you think I am. I'm better to you and in your sight than I actually am. So what's the remedy? Because we need a remedy. Well, Christ is the remedy. I've already told you there are six woes. He doesn't say, woe is me, like Isaiah does in that seventh woe, because you and I are supposed to hear this and say, woe is me. I'm undone because my heart is not always what it should be. And I need you to change my heart and I need you to have mercy on me and I need you to cleanse me. And what did God do to Isaiah? He took the coals. He took the coal from the altar. He touched his lips. He said, I've cleansed your lips. That's pointing to the cross and to the blood of cleansing of the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, Christ would have us run to him, run to the foot of the cross, run to be cleansed under his blood. But there are some practical things that he gives us as well. Very quickly, I want to go back through this, and I want to show you just a couple things. Notice Verse 40, when he first introduces the cup and the dish analogy, notice this, verse 40, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? So one of the first things that we can do in in avoiding religious hypocrisy is to acknowledge that there is one God who has made us. He's made our outside and our inside. He knows us through and through. He knows every thought, every word, every affection. That's frightening. He tells us in chapter 12 on Judgment Day, not one word that we've ever spoken is going to be held back. It's all going to be proclaimed. 
Every harsh word, gossiping, slanderous word, sexually immoral thought, word, action, everything's going to be laid bare. But he made us, and that means he can cleanse us. Because only he who made us can cleanse us. Only he who made the inside can cleanse the inside. And that's good news for us, that there's a God who loves to cleanse the hearts of his people. And he does it through the blood of Jesus. And he loves to cleanse the hearts of those who come and say, Lord, I am unclean. Cleanse me. Here's my heart. Take it promptly. It's yours. Um, There's another thing we can remember. Notice when Jesus uh, rails on the Pharisees for tithing mint and and those things, um, the herbs and the spices, Uh, Notice what Jesus says, and this is very, very important here. Jesus says, uh, you tithe every herb and rue and mint, you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then he actually says to them, notice back, back in verse 41, notice this, very important. Jesus says, give alms of those things that are within what does he mean? That's a, that's a very hard saying. Theologians are super divided over what it means. Here's what I think it means. I don't think he's saying give alms of everything you have in your house. And obviously we should be giving much more than we give. Um, Jesus is saying, give me your heart. Give me your affections. Give me your love. Give me your devotion. Worship me from the heart. Love me with your heart and mind and soul and strength. Give alms of those things that are within. That's a much, that's a much greater... And, and you know what will happen? Here's the interesting thing. When we do that, we'll want to give more of our possessions. Because we've already given God the thing he wants, our hearts. Um, and so I think that's part of the remedy. And then finally, I've already noted this. There's a judgment day coming, and that's a frightening thought. Um, I am often frightened by the thought of judgment day. You get one life, um, and that's it. And then we're going to give an account of everything we've done in the body, whether good or ill. And not one of us can say, I've done pretty good, because you haven't. You haven't, and I haven't. You've done really bad. We've all done really bad is the Bible's testimony. And yet, when we start to fear, um, and we start to, to think over all the things we've done wrong, and the evil one brings them to bear, and, and essentially says to you, how in the world could you ever be saved? You've done so much wicked stuff. We flee to Christ. And you know, it's very interesting. I want to leave you with this. I want to challenge you to do this. Go back through this passage and everything that Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the lawyers for, I want you to ask yourself, what did Jesus do with that regard? You see, he had zero love for the externals of religion. Jesus had zero love for the external show. Jesus 
gave his will entirely to his father. When he's in the garden, pressed down, looking at the cup, knowing he has to go to the cross, knowing that he's going to be forsaken of his father, what does Jesus do? He says, he says, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He gives his heart fully to God for us and for our redemption. He, he gives everything. He holds nothing back. He doesn't just give a tenth of his goods. He pours his blood out for his people to redeem us. He gives his life to redeem us. He gives everything. He gives himself fully to God. He gives everything to us as the redeemer. And, and I'll let you go through the rest. I think the remedy is seen in who it is that is saying these things, who he is and what he did. Now, here's the good news. If you are like me, and you start examining yourself, and you start to feel condemned, you've got one thing to do. You've got to go to the one who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't it interesting? The lawyers placed burdens heavy to bear on the backs of the people and didn't help them at all. And Jesus says, I'm going to take all the burden. I'm going to take all your sin, everything you've ever done wrong, everything, every sinful word, every self-righteous thought, every sexually immoral act and thought and word, every proud, every greedy, every covetous, every idolatrous thought. I'm going to take it all myself. I'm going to take all the wrath for you. I'm going to bear the burden, and then I'm going to give you a gentle yoke, and it's going to be easy, and you're going to have rest for your souls in me. You know, there's that beautiful picture, and I want to leave you with this, because I think it captures where this should move us. Um, When Christian leaves on that journey um, with the burden on his back, and and he, he finally makes it to the cross. It's the most beautiful picture. Bunyan shows the picture that the burden on his back rolls down the hill, which is Mount Calvary, and into the empty tomb. The burden on his back rolls into the empty tomb and is gone. Now, that is not a false hope. That's the gospel. It's not false hope. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what you need. And when that happens, we become more and more sincere. We don't, we don't try to live like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the externals and all of that kind of self-righteousness. We, with Calvin, want to give our hearts to the Lord promptly, wholly to him. Um, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that there is much in our lives that is not what it ought to be. We don't come this morning pretending to be righteous. We don't come as the Pharisee in his prayer who said, I give all that I have, I fast, I, I, I do this, I do that. We come as the tax collector this morning. We come with our, our heads bowed low and we pray that you would have mercy on us. Father, would you please make us to see our need for the Lord Jesus? Would you give us rest for our souls? Would you purify our hearts? Would you give us uh, the ability to give our hearts to you fully, washed and purified in the blood of Christ? 
Would you make us sincere and without offense until the day of Christ? Our God, make us a people who examine ourselves, but make us a people who flee to the Savior. Lord Jesus, would you receive us and cleanse us and renew us and give us rest for our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.